Hello, everyone. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, this is the conclusion today of our Beholding Christ and Building His Kingdom series. And so you will not have to guess where we're going each week. We'll just be able to pick back up in our series in Exodus. But for now, we're flipping to a new place. And I have been excited by your excitement over what it seems like God is doing in our church. And I think there's probably various levels of excitement, of interaction for those who have availed themselves of being here or being part of community groups. There seems to be this palpable, like like God has been raining this blessing down and everyone who put out their cup has gotten filled in some measure. There's a, a fresh faith, a fresh hopefulness about Jesus building his church here, him building us up in love, of us going deeper together in doctrine, of us growing in our faith and growing up together into maturity in Christ. There's been excitement about not worshiping in the shadows and actually making a meaningful difference in our town as we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone until they are complete in him where we let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and Jesus receives glory in Brattleboro in a way that he would not if we were not here shining with his light. We talked a lot about building a church that the next generation can inherit and take on and take the baton that we hand to them and and run with it for the glory of God here. And we cling throughout this series to this promise from our Lord Jesus that he will build his church. Not just this church, but the church everywhere until she fills all things and that everywhere where the enemy has set up strongholds, they are all coming down. Do you believe that this morning? Like they are all coming down until the church fills all things. And he has proclaimed that he will work through the church and his gospel, and the spiritual weapons that he has given us until Christ has all the worship that he deserves from everyone, everywhere. And yet, as we look around our town, we can see strongholds everywhere. The work is not done. In fact, if we were to be honest, the work feels like it's just getting started. There's pervasive poverty everywhere, such an extreme brokenness, and the town's trying to ask all these questions, and they have no answers. A bigger issue is the drug addiction that just marks our town, people living in bondage everywhere. There is real demonic oppression, demonic activity that that is obviously demonic, and we see it in In things like drug addiction, we see it in things like celebration of wickedness and every kind of sexual perversion and deviance that could be dreamed up, celebrated in our town. And we could go on and on. I had a longer list, but I'm shortening the intro. These problems feel supernaturally big, and that is because they have hell as their source. They're actually demonic in nature, and so in reality, they are too big for us, there is a spiritual war 
going on for the souls of men and women in our town. And many of us may not have been mindful of that war this week. You just, we just live through life not mindful of the war, not mindful of the fact that every single person that you encounter is either going to be, as C.S. Lewis said, an everlasting horror or an everlasting glory, but you've never met a mere mortal. These are people that are going to be somewhere forever, and there is a war going on for their souls, and we've been called into the battle. God's word says that the natural man is caught in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So every single person that you know that has not been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him has been held captive by the devil to do his will. He has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Christ Jesus. And my question is, do we not sometimes feel clueless as to how to actually go about ministering in our town? Seeing people actually set free from a bondage that seems like we don't even know where to start. Have you ever run into feelings of hopelessness or discouragement when we consider our inability to minister effectively to the needs around us. And so it's with that kind of problem that we encounter in our day-to-day life where it's almost easier not to care or not to try to engage because we feel so hopeless or powerless to do anything about it, that I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word as we go to Mark chapter 9. So please stand with me if you're physically able. We're in Mark chapter 9. And we are beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. God's word says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. This is Jesus saying, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and it rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are diving into the deep end of a pool where we are used to staying in the shallows. We ask that you would teach us to swim, that you would teach us to pray, that you would teach us how to use the weapons of our warfare, and that would you, you would use us as your church for the glory of your name. Come speak to us. Teach us, Father, that we might obey your testimonies and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so our text begins with, and they came. And what, what's just happened in this story is Peter, James, and John have gone up with Jesus on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and they have seen the veil of Jesus' flesh dropped before him, and they see Jesus in all of his glory as Moses and Elijah come and are ministering to him, and they are scared, senseless, and they give a lot of dumb recommendations, and God says, this is my son, listen to him. And the whole point of the transfiguration is the same as what the writer of Hebrews begins that epistle with, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets through men like Moses and Elijah. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son through whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This was God in the flesh. The creator God who for a moment allowed his disciples to see him in all of his divinity and they are coming down off of that mountaintop experience into the valley below where they will encounter a deep darkness, a, a, a lot of demonic activity. And in a similar way, we have begun this series with all of life flows out of a vision of beholding Christ together. That's where we must live, where, where we see Jesus as he is and we live our life in him, through him, and for him. But we cannot just live there at the mountain. We can't just live only in our secret place with our Bibles open. We actually have to go down from this place to the work of building his kingdom. We actually have to go up from this series to actually go out and minister in Christ's name in our town where we will run into incredible opposition. We will run into opposition and oppression and strongholds that are too big for us. We'll run into situations where we feel helpless or into relationships where we feel hopeless. And perhaps more dangerously for us, we will run into situations that feel manageable. 
into ministry situations that we've encountered before where we've seen God's success in the past. And so now we forget to rely on him or we forget to seek him as earnestly because the situation doesn't feel as desperate. Now our danger as we descend to life and ministry is an unbelief that looks like self-sufficiency. It looks like ministry in our own prayerless strength. Francis Schaeffer argued that the central problem of our age is not outside the church, but is actually the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. Us going out so excited about building His kingdom, so excited about what He's doing, and then going on in our own prayerless strength to build the church without Him. We cannot afford to be powerless, self-sufficient disciples, arguing with those who come against us in our flesh, frustrated at the lack of results. It is possible for us to think that we're defending Christ and His cause in the world. As we engage people in arguments, as we engage people in ministry, all the while walking in our, fa- in our flesh and in our self-sufficiency rather than in humble faith. And so as we go forward into battles that are too strong for us, into opposition from our town as we proclaim a Christ that they hate, they do not want you to come and to minister in Christ's name to them. There will be opposition. There will be demonic backlash. We need to, like at the transfiguration, see Christ in all of his glory, and then we need to go engage the world with a real faith and a real power that come through our real Christ. So we need revelation this morning. This is where we're going. God opening our eyes. That's where we see this passage begin with Jesus opening their eyes and then there's another group of disciples that do not see as clearly. So what we need this morning is for God to open our eyes, one, to the reality of spiritual warfare, two, to the glory of Jesus' authority, and three, to the necessity of faith and prayer in seeing the kingdom come. So that's where we're going. We, we need supernatural revelation. We did not see everything that we need to see by me saying that just now. We need God to do a work in our hearts to open our eyes so that we actually leave changed and we see the world differently. We see our lives differently. So first in this passage, we see the reality of spiritual warfare. There are spiritual realities that we cannot see. So in the in the passage right before ours at the transfiguration that's what we see happening where God lowers the veil of Jesus's flesh and they see Jesus acts as he actually is in all of his glory it was a spiritual reality that previously was unseen by them like they could not see Jesus's glory in a way that God had revealed it to them in that moment and in a similar but opposite way there is demonic activity that exists all around that is invisible, but is nonetheless real, is real. 
C.S. Lewis said, I just finished re-listening to Screwtape Letters. I recommend it to you. It's very insightful and helpful. But it's all this senior demon training a younger demon on how to tempt people. And it's very insightful when you see some of the enemy's schemes, right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not coming out to you with a pitchfork and horns and saying, go this way, right? But C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so... We can see in our passage, look at just the source and the anguish of the boy's illness. Now, we know that there are other instances in the Gospels where clearly there's Jesus healing leprosy, there's Jesus healing a blind man, and there's there's nothing said about the source being demonic. So this text is not teaching that every single disease and every single sickness is somehow demonically sourced and that we go around just casting out demons out of everybody who has a fever. That's not what this text is saying. But we know from this text that specifically this illness that this boy had that just looked like epilepsy. It, it looked like he just had seizures and, and seizures. And to us, we might just look at him and be like, yeah, just, I mean, this is normal. This is just what happens to people and it's unfortunate, but there's nothing that can be done. But the text is very clear that this was an unclean spirit that from childhood had demonized this man's only son, and from this passage in Luke, we learn he's, he's coming to the disciples and he's begging them. He came to bring them to Jesus. And what he found instead was the disciples and they couldn't do anything. But we know that the devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy And he has different strategies. So in this text, the strategy is this overt demonization that looks so obvious. And with you, you may have a different strategy, right? He's not coming to you and demon-possessing your children. He can't. But he attacks with distraction, with deception, with discouragement, with lies, with accusations, with condemnation, right? We encounter this demonic opposition all the time, but it is subversive, it is subtle, it is meant to lull you to sleep and just to blind you to the reality of the war around you. So the first observation here this morning is the first way we need God to open our eyes is to see the reality of spiritual warfare all around us. It's happening when you open your Bible in the morning and you remember all the things that you need to do. It's happening when you don't open your Bible in the morning because of how busy you are. It's happening when you feel that nudge to share the gospel with a friend at work and you you cower away in fear and you don't. It's happening all the time. There's this passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the Syrian king is surrounding Elisha Because he's found out that the king of Israel is getting intel because Elisha walks so closely with God that God is whispering to him the king of Syria's secrets in his bedroom. And then he goes and tells the king what the king of Syria is going to do. So the king of Syria bypasses attacking the king of Israel and he's coming straight for where the power is. And Elisha's servant's freaking out. 
And Elisha says, there are more with us than there are with them. The servant's sitting there scratching his head like, well, it just feels like there's the two of us here. And Elisha prays, God, open his eyes. Help him to see. And then instantly, he sees chariots of fire and invisible armies that are surrounding them, protecting them. And then it says that Elisha prays, God, strike these people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now, we're coming back to that idea. But that is astounding. Here is a man, and like Elijah before him, has a, a nature just like yours. It's not, he doesn't have like a, any kind of supernatural nature, supernatural favor with God. He was a righteous man. And God listened to his prayers and used him as a channel of his power and his activity in the world. Because Elisha walked with him. He, he saw what a natural man could not see. It's because God had opened his eyes to see that every battle, though some battles may be fought in the flesh, that they are ultimately always spiritual. That's where every true fight and wrestling happens, where it begins, where the victory is won, is in these unseen realities. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because the devil has schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of those referring to different kinds of demonic forces and different kinds of spiritual darkness that come against God and his kingdom and his people. There is, as with Elijah, or Elisha, true spiritual power that God works through his people who walk with him in humble faith. There is a real spiritual power that God works through his people, that he has ordained to use human agency as a channel of his divine power and activity in the world. He doesn't need us. But like we saw last week with our giving, he delights to use us. He delights to invite us in, to make us part of his work. It's why he taught us to pray, Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he called us, he demands us to pray it. Because he wants to use your prayers to do it. It's an astounding privilege. But we do not seek authority for ourselves or spiritual power in and of itself. And this is where people get into this kind of like false teaching that's really just kind of like you gaining some kind of spiritual power, spiritual authority, kind of emphasizes your authority and your power over Jesus' authority as the strong man. He is the strong man who comes and binds the enemy, as we'll see. But he invites us, as we are united with him, to walk in his authority as those under authority. There's this instance in Acts chapter 19 where God is doing miraculous things through Paul as he walks with God in humble faith. I mean, people are being healed by just his handkerchief touching them. And so these Jewish exorcists are like, this is so sweet. 
power. I got, we got to get in on this. Whatever we're doing doesn't work every time. And so they go and they encounter unclean spirits, evil spirits, like what we see in our story. And they say, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims to come out of them. And the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the demons proceed to beat the mess out of him. It says he overpowered them and leapt on them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, which is really what we are afraid of <laughs> when we think about encountering, encountering the demonic and actually exercising authority. But here's an example of those that seek to exercise some kind of spiritual power and authority outside from under Jesus' power and authority trying to wield Jesus' name, trying to use Jesus for our end or for our glory rather than coming under submission to him and being a channel of his life and his power and his authority so that his will is done. This is the reality that the disciples were running into in Mark chapter 9. Jesus had in the past given them authority to cast out demons. They come back marveling. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He says, don't marvel at this. Marvel that your names are written in the book of life. They kind of hung on to some of that spiritual pride. They were pumped that they saw beings that were stronger than them responding to their words as they invoked the name of Jesus. And so now they, here they are. And this father has begged them, the corresponding passage in Luke, it gives the same account. It says, there, he's begging them, please do something about my only son. And they are powerless. It's as if these demons are mocking them in all their powerlessness. Because what happened is they were operating on previously delegated authority rather than present communion. They were not prayerful in this moment. They were doing ministry the way that they had always done it. They were relying on their expertise. They were, for us, preaching messages because at this point we're pretty good at it. Uh, going out and ministering to people prayerlessly. Going out and serving people because it's what we do. Not actively relying on Christ and his power and his authority and doing ministry in the arm of the flesh. So I want you to contrast this, right? We, we need him to show us the reality of spiritual warfare around us and contrast this with the glory of Jesus's authority. So look at verse 19. <clears throat> when all hope seems lost, Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. And what does he say? Bring him to me. This is what happens when all hope seems lost. Jesus says, come to me. The Lord Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And here we see a vivid demonstration of his power and his authority, both by virtue of his deity and by virtue of him being the perfect son of God. He was man as God intended for man to be. He, he was exercising dominion over God's creation as one who walked in perfect communion with his heavenly father. So what you see happening in this passage from Jesus is not just him being Jesus. 
as the eternal God the Son. We see him being Jesus as the head over a new humanity. This is the authority and the power and a demonstration of God's life that God designed for everyone to live with. But we don't because we live in our self-sufficiency. We live in our prideful unbelief. But this is why you can see Jesus' authority as he's rebuking people for their unbelief and as he looks to the Father, the Father of the Son, and and in this section of Mark, he's teaching the disciples. All of these things are teaching moments. This passage is not even mainly about the Father and the Son. He's teaching the disciples, and that's why it ends like it does. So in this moment, he's, he's speaking to the Father, but he's also speaking to his disciples, and he says, if you can, all things are possible to one who believes. Now, that is a shocking thing to say here. I just want you to come to this passage like you've never read it before. This is a shocking thing to say. One would assume that he would say, all things are possible for the Son of Man. Not, all things are possible to the one who has faith. So he's saying, what you're about to see is happening because of my faith in my heavenly father because of my communion with my heavenly father i want you to watch this now the father responds god i believe help my unbelief so he's responding to what he hears jesus saying jesus is teaching this guy and the disciples he then turns to the boy in the demonic spirit and he says i myself command you come out of him and never come back. But you see his authority. This is the eternal son of God who walked out of the grave and is enthroned in heaven on the throne of the universe. He is Lord over this town. He is king over every single person in this town, over every single bondage that looks too big for you. And he can show up and say, I command you now be gone and never come back. Do you believe that he can do this? There is a a link to see him doing what he wants to do and us seeing his power at work in our community. When he came to Nazareth, he marveled at their unbelief. And it says he, he could not do many mighty miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief except that he couldn't help himself and he compassionately healed a few sick people. So the demon convulses the boy, leaves him for dead. Sometimes when you invite Jesus' power and his authority into your life, things may seem like they get a little worse before they seem like they get better. But Jesus uses this moment to demonstrate his authority and his power over death and to point ahead to his resurrection in bringing the boy up from, by his hand and he rises back to life, literally says he resurrects and he demonstrates his power and his authority. But what's astounding is later in John 14, he'll tell his disciples, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now we're coming to that. But don't miss this. Jesus is meaning in this passage to demonstrate to you what it looks like to live faithful in the Father's house. Faith-filled. That's what faithful means. He's walking on, persevering, continuing by faith. And he was faithful over God's house as the Son. So he is walking with perfect faith, perfect communion with his heavenly Father, a perfectly prayerful life. He's not just praying in this moment like, oh no, this kind only comes out by faith. He lived in prayer. It's the most conspicuous thing about his life. He went up on the mountain to pray. Every single moment he gets, he's getting by himself to get alone with his heavenly Father, and he's praying, God, bring your kingdom through me here. And he is working, and all the time, he doesn't speak a word outside of the command of his heavenly Father. He doesn't do one action outside of abiding in his heavenly Father to demonstrate to us as an example how we are to abide in him, how we are to submit to him, how we are to live life in prayerful dependence on him. Not our will, but his be done. Not our authority, but his. This was a true man as God intended for him to be. And he showed us, third, as we come to our last observation, the necessity of faith and prayer in seeing the kingdom come. The necessity of faith and prayer in seeing the kingdom come. Look again at verse 19. What Jesus says when they first bring him the boy, he does not say, only I can do this. He says, O faithless generation, and then later, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. He means to show us that he wants us to be able to do this same thing, to act in the same way, to demonstrate the same kind of authority over the demonic strongholds that without the power of Christ are impossible to encounter in the natural And I just wonder what you would expect him to say here in this last verse of our passage, in verse 29. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but fill in the blank. Surely whatever he says has to be one of the greatest spiritual weapons at anyone's disposal. This kind, this kind of spiritual stronghold, He's not saying this kind of demon responds to prayer and this kind of demon doesn't. He's not, he's not determining like kind of these different hierarchies between these different kinds of demonic activity. He's saying this kind of stronghold and demonic activity will not respond to you walking in your self-sufficient unbelief. This kind comes out only by prayer. And I think our response is prayer? I mean, maybe not if you've heard this a ton before, but we struggle with prayer because we are faithless. Prayer 
more than anything else that God commands us to do, feels so unproductive. I've tried to get at the bottom of why we don't pray because we struggle with it as a church, right? I mean, we pray at our gatherings, we pray in our community groups, but every church seems like struggles with a prayer night. Why is that? It doesn't feel like the payoff is worth it. It has to be the only thing that it is because he commands us to do it and simple obedience isn't enough. So we in our minds, even maybe passively, are just thinking, I am pretty tired of praying. I've been to a couple of these things where I pray in the morning and it doesn't seem like there's this cause and effect. It doesn't seem as practical as just being able to go out and serve somebody. Why can't he not just be happy with me saying, like, go serve that person over there? Then I actually feel like I'm getting to do something with my hands. It's measurable. It feels productive. It feels efficient. Prayer is the least efficient thing I think you can imagine. It is so helpless, so humble. We are casting ourselves upon God and his mercy for his will and his timing. And he almost never answers things as fast as we want him to. Not because he's not good, but because he's working in us. Because his ways are higher than ours. And so we get tired of it. We start to see it as something that empowers ministry, but is not the ministry itself. Prayer to us seems like that additive that you might put into fuel so that it doesn't corrode the engine, but it's not actually like the real fuel. It just seems like something you've got to sprinkle on top. And I was reading in this passage the other day in 2 Kings chapter 5, same, same time frame, still Elisha, and this commander of the Syrian army gets leprosy. His name's Naaman. And this servant girl says, oh, I wish you were with the prophet that's in Samaria. He would heal you of your leprosy. And so he's so desperate, he actually goes on the word of a little girl to ask his king to write to this other king for him to have a meetup and be healed. And so Elisha finds out about it. And just like the Lord Jesus in our text says, why are you tearing your clothes? Bring him to me. Now, wouldn't it be awesome to be walking by faith like that? To be walking with kind of a spiritual authority like that, where we could look at people in our town and say, why are you wringing your hands over this issue? Bring them to us. And so they bring him to Elisha. Elisha didn't even come outside to greet him. He sends a messenger and says, go tell him to go wash and dip in the Jordan seven times. And the guy is furious. He says, are there not rivers in Syria that are better than this old piece of junk in Israel? That would, would dip in this? I thought he was going to come out and wave his hands and say, be healed in the name of the Lord and cure the leper. We have all these ways that we think ministry should look. And his servants very graciously ask him a piercing question. He says, if he had asked you for something hard, would you have not have done it? Is that a hard thing that he asked you to do? And so he goes and he dips seven times and he's perfectly healed and he's set free and he becomes a believer and God works his miraculous power. And I think that this is our response to prayer though. It's just like dipping in the Jordan. It's this humbling thing, this thing that doesn't seem like much. You might come to this passage and you might have your devotional time and you might be like, wow, look at the power of prayer. And then we close our Bibles and don't pray and we move on. 
we lack spiritual power and authority and are not tearing down strongholds in our town, in our lives, in our families, in our children, to the extent that we neglect walking in humble faith expressed in prayer. We have to be mindful of the enemy's schemes, of the reality of the war around us, and to be vigilant to fight with spiritual weapons. So specifically, the weapons that God has given us are not physical. It's not going around and forcing people into faith or seeing people physically removed from their stuff by the exertion of our efforts apart from faith. This building work is going to require real work. It's not just going to be praying. We're going to actually have to go do stuff. We cannot do it in the arm of our flesh. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that they have spiritual weapons that have divine power for destroying the devil's strongholds. So that's the question for us this morning. Do we believe that the only offensive weapons that the Lord has given us, namely the word of God and prayer, do we believe that they have divine power for tearing down strongholds? And do you want to be a part of tearing down strongholds and building the church? Jesus' emphasis on this passage is faith. So we have to see this connection between faith and prayer. He's rebuking them for their unbelief. He says, all things are possible to those who believe. And then in verse 29, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In the same passage corresponding to this in Matthew chapter 17, when they asked, why could we not cast out this demon? His answer to them, closely connected, I want you to see the parallel. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So it's, it's as if he's saying, if you had faith instead of unbelief, if you had been living in prayer instead of your own self-sufficiency, then you'd have victory over the evil one. I read somewhere this week that Prayer is faith turned to God. That's why Jesus goes beyond just this ethereal, like if you had faith, if you only had faith. He, he's going to the expression of faith because faith, like love, has to be worked out if it's real. And so he doesn't just say, if you only had faith, then it would happen. He's saying, your faith expresses itself in dependence on me in inviting me and my Father and our authority into this situation so that you are a channel of his life and his power and his authority. It's not about you. It's about you having enough faith in something in general. Faith is faith in God, not faith in something to happen. This, the world has a, a jacked up view of faith, right? If you just believe enough, then it'll happen. And it's pervaded its way into the church. If you just had faith, then Jesus said that anything was possible. And so you just need to believe enough that it will happen. And then like this kind of the secret heresy where just thoughts become things. And if you just believe enough, then it will happen for you. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's commanded us, if you ask me anything in my name, meaning, Lord Jesus, if you were here, I believe you'd be praying this exact same thing. 
And I'm praying for your kingdom to come and your will to be done right here in this moment as it is on heaven, in heaven. This is not about me and my authority. This is about you and your authority. It's about your kingdom coming. And I trust you. No matter how you answer this right now. Real faith is okay looking foolish and praying boldly for something and God not answering it the way that you want. I think the best example of this that I could think of just off the top of my head as I was preparing this is from Acts chapter 12. James is beheaded in prison. The church had surely been praying earnestly for his release and for Peter's. But all we know from the text is that the church had been earnestly praying for Peter's release. And God hears the prayers of the church and Peter is freed because of the prayers of the church. If the church had not been praying, Peter stays locked up. What about James? Well, the sovereign God can do whatever he wants. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. But he invites us in to pray. And when you're praying for James and he's beheaded, will you still have enough faith to pray earnestly for Peter? Will you allow God to use you as a channel of his power and his authority and his blessing and life in the world even when he tells you no? Will you ask and keep on asking and seek and keep on seeking Living a life of depending on God and giving expression to your faith in humble, dependent prayer. Prayer is the fruit of real faith. And I told you guys, I prayed this at the beginning of this message. I, I feel like someone who swims maybe in four or five foot water in a 10 foot pool. Maybe in the ocean. And I'm looking to everybody. I'm looking at people who are in the six-foot section, the people who are in the two-foot section, all of us, saying, let's go into the deep together. Let's press on into understanding together. Let's press on into a faith that prays. It is possible to pray without faith, but it is not possible to have faith and not pray. And so we can't deceive ourselves in that we're believing God in some way all the while working it out in the power of our flesh. So this has massive implications on your personal life, on your family, but on us collectively as a church. Will we be the house of prayer that Jesus has called us to be? How will the strongholds in our town or in our families or in your life come down because of the way that we pray, not just individually, but together? John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. And so as we kind of roll up the blueprints of this vision series, and we kind of come down the mountain in a sense, Jesus has revealed himself to us, his plans to us, and we descend into the valley of regular everyday life and ordinary faithfulness, and warfare that is sure to come. How does the Lord meet us in the midst of our prayerlessness this morning, in the midst of our unbelief? I think just as in this passage, he meets us with a rebuke. You faithless generation, how long will you go on 
in your prayerlessness and be okay with it. But he also meets us with love. He meets the Father, he meets all of them in the midst of their unbelief, and he uses it as a teaching moment for the disciples. He, he heals the boy anyways. He comes in power and with promise. He comes with the gospel, with a picture of his resurrection saying, I have power over death and I'm setting you free and I want to use you to be a channel of my resurrection power everywhere. I think he speaks to us this morning as he spoke to Thomas, despite all of his unbelief, where he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And as with this text, that looks like, don't disbelieve, but pray. So let's do that together. Father, Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grant us humble faith that expresses itself in a life of prayer. We do not seek great things for ourselves or seek our own power or authority. All authority in heaven and on earth are yours. You are the strong man that builds your church and tears down the enemy's strongholds. And... We believe you desire to use us to make us a channel of your blessing and of your power and of your kingdom coming and your will being done right here as it is in heaven. So we say together, Lord Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. Teach us to pray for the glory of your name. Amen.